You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Neil Bernardino. I am the pastor of this church, and we are continuing our series on uh, knowing God. This is going to be our third week for this series. For the last two weeks, we looked at how we can know God, and so we looked at some of His attributes. So for the first week, we looked at God's glory, that He is a God of glory. And then we looked at basically His glorious nature. And then last week, we talked about His goodness. How many of you would say God is good? You've heard this before. God is good and all the time. So we've been hearing that. To the point that sometimes it, it has lost basically its meaning because it became a cliche. But God is really good to each one of us. And no matter what happens to us, and even if we don't see what's up ahead, God has good concerning us. And today we're going to talk about God's generosity. So God is a generous God. And aren't you glad that God is not a stingy God? He's not like Ebenezer Scrooge. But he is very, very generous, and we're going to talk about that. With that, I'd like to invite everybody to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 65. We're going to read the whole psalm. It's only 13 verses, and I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. The title says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Verse 1, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you, hear prayer. To you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth, and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Verse 9. You visit the earth and water it you greatly enrich it the river of god is full of water you provide their grain for so you have prepared it you water its furrows abundantly settling its ridges softening it with showers and blessing its growth you crown the year with your bounty your wagon tracks overflow with abundance the pastures of the wilderness overflow the hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, let the abundance, not just of your word, but of your life, dwell in us. Lord, you said that you came to give us life and have it to the full. Lord, may the abundant life continually mark our lives. And Father, right now we give of ourselves to you and we give thanks for all your goodness, all your glory, and for all your generosity. 
Thank you, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So basically what we're doing here is we are magnifying God for His unceasing faithfulness in supplying what the earth needs and supplying all that we need. And He is our provider. And we're looking at His generosity now. What we're looking at here is basically a manifestation of God's love. Generosity is, in its truest form, is a manifestation of the love of God. It's a manifestation of love. And love is not just a feeling. A lot of people wait for feelings before they can say that they love someone. But as we study the word love, it's really enlightening it, 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 when we see from the scriptures that the word love actually is a decision. It is more a decision rather than anything else. So when you look at love, it is a decision that we make. Because feelings come and go. There are times that you don't feel like going to work. There are times you don't feel like waking up. There are times you don't feel like coming to church. I told this story already years ago, but uh, maybe for those of you who are new. You know, there's one guy, his wife is waking him up and said, Time to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Come on, it's time to go to church. We're going to be late. I don't want to go to church. Give me one good reason why I should go to church today. Well, for one, you're the pastor of the church. You know, if love is just a feeling, then we're doomed. Feelings come and go. Feelings come and go. But if it's a decision, then regardless of the circumstance or feelings, we decide to do good, then that's what we're going to do. Now, as we look at this psalm, again, this is a psalm of David. It says there in the title, To the Choir Master. So this is something he wrote and he gave to the choir master for the choir master to teach to teach the choir and also the people because psalms were used to be memorized so that they can be reminded of the goodness, the greatness, the glory, the, the majesty, the awesomeness of God and all that He has done so that they can continue to meditate on who He is. They need to be reminded. And so David wrote this poem and when we talk about poems in our training, our training of poems is according to the West, Western thought. When you think of poems, what comes to mind? Rhymes. When we think about poems, we think of rhymes. Poetry from the Hebrew tradition is not based on rhymes. Their poetry is more on parallelism. So when you look at the book of Psalms, and again, we're reading English. And it was written in Hebrew, so it's difficult really to translate, to interpret you know, from the Hebrew. That's why... It, the interpreters, the translators take great pains to really capture both the thought and the word that is appropriate for us so that we can understand it without losing the Hebrew thought. For them, it's parallelism. There are different types of parallelism. We're not going to do that today. So when you read the book of Psalms and it says it's a poem, and you go, it's a poem. How come it's not rhyming? You're reading from a Western mindset. You're reading a Hebrew poetry from a Western mind. That's what we're doing. And many times that's what we do with Scripture. The Scripture is telling us something, but we have something else in our mind that we want the Scriptures to agree with. We're reading into the Scriptures. We're not letting the Scriptures speak to us. So here, this is a song of thanksgiving to God written by David. This was a song meant to be sung, meant to be sung by the congregation. 
And it celebrates basically the goodness of God and His faithfulness to His people through the harvest blessings. They were a very agricultural society at the time. And so during harvest time, they would gather their crops and then they would celebrate and they would give thanks to God. And as they come together as a community, they would sing these psalms. They have different songs and different psalms that they would sing in order to give thanks to God. During their time as well, ancient peoples also were all agricultural and they believe in fertility gods. Remember, ancient pagans, they did not know about the one true God. What they know about is that there's a, a plethora of gods. There's a God for, for this, there's a God for that, there's a goddess for this, there's a goddess for that. And they have a God or goddess for fertility. It's for both fertility for the womb and also for the land. A lot of them believe that when they have a good harvest, that means that their fertility God was pleased with them. And if they had a bad year or had a poor harvest, that meant their fertility God was angry at them. So what they do during the harvest feasts for these pagans is that they would have religious rites not to give thanks to their deity, which is no deity at all, it's just an idol, but in their minds, those are deities. So they would not give thanks. They would do things to appease. And they would do things to manipulate the gods so that they will have a good harvest. We don't have time to go into that now. But if they get into their rights, that's why some of them, they have temple prostitution. Some of them, they sacrifice their kids. Because what they want is a good harvest. But that is not the mindset for the Hebrew celebration of the harvest. When the Hebrews would come together and celebrate the harvest, they're not trying to appease God. They are thanking Him. Because in the ancient pagan mindset, basically how the land will produce crops will depend on the people, how they appease the fertility God. That's the mindset. But for the Hebrews, regardless of what we do, God blesses the earth. He's the one who causes the earth to produce what we need. And he's the one who gives us all these things. He does that not because we make him do it or not because of our goodness. He does it because of his goodness. He sends rain to the soil. He sends rain and the warmth of the sun both down upon the righteous and the wicked. See, God is good to everyone. So here, these were harvest feasts meant to celebrate God's generosity to them. When I talk about generosity, I've met a lot of people who were generous, especially in church. I'm blown away by a lot of people's generosity. It's all because of their revelation of who Jesus is. But growing up, you know, I wasn't a Christian when I was small. Growing up, I had the example of my father who was, I would say even now, even if uh, he was not a Christian at the time, he is one of the most generous persons I know. He's one of the most generous people I know. We were not rich. But there was a season in our lives when I was a teenager where my dad's business boomed. So we kind of enjoyed it a bit. But then it was only a season. But for some reason, a lot of people who came to him, there's something he would give out. When people have needs, they would come to my dad and I would see that. And he would give them even beyond what they're, what they're asking for. And uh, many times those people who promised those were loans, they never paid them back. So, but my dad never said anything about those things. Well, he may have said a few things every now and then. Of course, uh, he wasn't a Christian at the time. 
But just the same, he is the most generous person I know. And it's because of his example that probably it's not hard for me to give something to people. There's a need, okay, then let's give. So it's not an issue for me to be generous when the situation calls for it because I've seen my dad. So the word generosity is the free and liberal bestowal of wealth, possessions, or food upon others. The generosity of God is shown in His free bestowal of grace upon undeserving sinners. I think this is from the Dictionary of Biblical Themes. So it's the free and liberal, not measured, but liberal. Bestowal of wealth, all these things. The generosity of God is shown in His free bestowal of grace upon undeserving sinners. David's psalm celebrates how God was generous to them. He demonstrated generosity to his covenant people. And let me say this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was generous to his covenant people then, do you think he will not be generous to his covenant people today? And who are his covenant people today? At that time, it was just the nation of Israel. Now it's through Christ, it's the church. Israel still holds a special place in God. But it is through the church. God wants His blessing to come upon all the nations through His agent. And that His agent, His covenant people, is the church right now through Jesus. Now, how did God demonstrate His generosity according to Psalm 65? There are three things I'd like to share here with you this morning in the psalm. First is that He demonstrated His generosity through his grace. The first four verses. So this psalm is broken down into those three demonstrations. The four verses demonstrate his generosity through his grace. Let's look at Psalm 65 verses 1 through 4. It says there, praise is due to you, O God in Zion. See, praise is due. And it's interesting, the whole phrase here, not just the word praise, but the whole phrase means to be silent and meditate on the goodness of God and then it will result to an exuberant praise. Be silent in meditation. It's kind of like a volcano when it's silent but inside it's erupting, it's boiling and then all of a sudden it's going to explode. We are going to be silent meditating internally inside of us the goodness of God and as our hearts are overwhelmed with with joy and praise, that praise is going to come out. So we're going to praise God. Praise is due to you. That means He deserves it. And to you shall vows be performed. Again, this is in the context of the harvest, probably. O you who hear prayer. Look at this. David said, God hears our prayers. He listens to the prayers of His people. He is attentive to the prayers of of his righteous ones. He actually hears everyone's prayers, but he is particularly attentive to the prayers of the saints. Tell the person next to you, he is attentive to your prayer. That doesn't mean that whatever you pray for, it's not according to your will, it's according to his will. But he's particularly attentive to your prayers. So you see, David is beginning to outline some of the things why God is worthy of our praise. You who hear prayer... To you shall all flesh come. To you shall all people come. So it's not just the Jews in David's mind, but all people. 
to you. You who hear prayer, to you all people will come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Here's again what God does. He hears prayers and he lets people come to him. When your sin, let me put it another way, when your sin is too much for you to handle or you sin too often, you love God but you sin too often. They love God but they just seem to be always stumbling, always slipping, always falling down. It seems like they're not learning their lesson. That's the essence of that phrase there. When iniquities or compounded sins prevail against me, you, God, atone for our transgressions. How many of you heard that the idea of the Old Testament is that God is revealed as a God of wrath? Have you heard that? God of justice? If you actually do read the entire Old Testament, yes, He is a God of justice. But what is emphasized in the Old Testament is the same as what is emphasized in the New Testament. God's grace has been there from the very beginning. God is gracious. He even revealed Himself to be. He is patient, abounding in love, and willing to be patient with His people and not bring judgment right away. You see, God is a God of grace. And see, David, because he's a man who pursued God's own heart, he understood that aspect of God. He understood that God loved him, that God was gracious to him. That's why when he sinned, remember when he lusted after Bathsheba, and he found out that Bathsheba was married to Uriah, one of his mighty warriors. He had adultery in Bathsheba first, but she got pregnant. And so he devised a way so that adultery would be kept under the rug. He had Uriah murdered, and then he took Bathsheba as his wife. But God confronted him through the prophet Nathan. You see, he was an adulterer and a murderer. A man after God's own heart. Moses was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. How many murdered somebody? Don't raise your hand. But God knows. And yet, you see, when God confronted David with his sins, he fell down before God, repented. And he said, Lord, Create in me a pure heart, O Lord, and, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and let not the Holy Spirit depart from me. That was his desire, because he understood that God, in spite of our flaws, God loves us, and he's gracious to us. He atones for our transgressions. He's patient with us. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. Look at that. I want you to look at that verse right there. Blessed is the one you, God, choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Blessed. David knew it. He was one who was always in the courts of God, in the presence of God. He knew the loving presence of God. And to be in the presence of God and in His love, Enveloped in his love, wrapped in his love. That's a blessing. Remember, he was a king. But you know what was more important to him? His relationship with God. 
Remember when he was, he was already the king and then the ark was brought in, he was the first one to celebrate. He was celebrating there in front of everybody. His wife was like, oh my goodness, he's the king. He's making a fool of himself. He's losing his dignity in front of everybody. How will everybody respect him now? When uh, David's wife, Michael, confronted him, David said, I'm paraphrasing my interpretation. I don't care what people are thinking. All I care about is what my God thinks. He's the one who put me here to be the king. And I'm thankful to him for that. And I'm going to give him praise. And if you think I'm undignified by doing that, I will be even more undignified if he'll give praise to the Father. That's how David was. So he was there. He blesses. He chooses. He draws near people so that they can be in his courts. Do you experience that inner court? Do you have an inner court relationship with God? Or do you just come here to church and get blessed and watch others tell people about their inner court experience with the Father? I don't know about you. I don't want to just hear people tell me about their experience. I want to experience it. But for me to experience it, I have to desire it. I have to want it. I don't analyze it. I want that. And that's what David had. That's why he was able to write all these psalms, because of his revelation of God. Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see here, we have the benefit of being forgiven of God. You see, even in the Old Testament, His grace is so overwhelming that people receive forgiveness if they just come to Him. David understood that. When my sins overwhelm me, I come to you, you atone for my sins. I receive that forgiveness. But many of us are carrying the weight of our sins too much. What God wants, He's always following you. And He wants you to surrender that sin to Him. But you carry the weight of your sin. No, I can carry this. Lord, you see the sins I'm having. This is so much. Would you bless me? But you don't want to let go of the sin. God's grace is generous. How many of you wrestle with condemnation because you've messed up a lot? You've messed up a lot. You've messed up big time. You repented of one thing, the next day you do it again. Then you do it again, and again, and again. Then you always come to God, Lord, I'm repenting of the same thing every day. But you see, God is gracious to us. Just stop and think about how patient God is with us. And even if we don't deserve it, He still gives us grace. Isn't God amazing? How many of us can be like that with our spouses or with our kids? So He is generous with His grace. And David understood that. He saw it, he experienced it, and he was communicating it. Secondly, God demonstrated his generosity through his power and might. From verses 5 through 8, we will see that he did demonstrate his generosity through his power and might. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. What did David say a few verses back? You who hear prayer. And then now here he's saying, you who answer us with what? Awesome deeds. Awesome deeds. Oh God of our salvation. 
See, David has been delivered by God so many times that he said, wait a minute, here's a pattern now. So if I'm in trouble, I may be afraid, but that the story doesn't end there. My God, as I look back, God has been faithful in every single moment I was in trouble. And He delivered me from all my troubles. And He delivered me from all my fears. Is that familiar? Have you read that somewhere? He will deliver you from all your fears. He will deliver you from all your troubles. Those are in the Psalms. And now, because of what God has done in the past, you think God will just change right now? If you've not seen the deliverance yet, do you think God abandoned you already? No, He has not. He wants you to stand firm, stand in faith, and wait for His deliverance. You're going to deliver me. And that's going to be your testimony. My awesome deeds. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas that refers to God. The one who by his strength established the mountains. So what are these awesome deeds? David gives us insight into some of these deeds. Verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. Establish the mountains. If he can make the mountains and make them majestic and insurmountable, what can he do with your situation? Verse 7, who stills the roaring of the seas. I remember Tony posted uh, a video on Facebook, I think several years ago. Every time I look at it, even though it's just a video, I feel seasick. Remember that cargo ship that goes in the Atlantic Ocean? You see big cargo ships in the middle of the Atlantic during a storm probably. Those waves are like, it can topple those huge cargo vessels. And those are the kinds of waves sometimes that hit us spiritually. Bigger than us. Scary. Overwhelming. But does that mean we have to stop living? See, we can live and we can be victorious over those things. Not by our might, nor by our power, but by His Spirit, by the power of God. It's not by my willpower that I will overcome the situation. It's going to be by the power and the might of my God. And whenever you're in a situation like that, God is mighty to save. Because He delights in you, and me too. And if He sees you in that trouble, He is concerned for you as well. But He's teaching you something. But in the end, He will deliver you. And He will deliver you in a mighty way that you will be able to tell people about it, how amazing God is. It's His might that's going to deliver you. None of you, all of Him. So that when you stand victorious, you're going to give praise and glory only to God. And the seas don't still themselves. The roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, the tumult of the nations. So he's the one who creates mountains. He stills the roars of the sea, the waves. He stills the seas. Even the uproar of the nations, of the peoples of the nations, he stills them. He's the sovereign one. He does all these things so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. How many of you remember the story when Jesus was sleeping in that little boat and they're crossing Lake Galilee and there was a storm and the waves were, were so high that the disciples were so afraid for their lives. 
But Jesus was sleeping. Maybe that's why God's ignoring me because you're asleep. Well, that tells you something. Even the thing that brings you fear, it doesn't bother Jesus at all. And here's a good thing as well that we need to remember. Jesus is in our boat. But when the sin or the fear was too overwhelming for them, they woke Jesus up and said, we're going to die. So he woke up. He commanded the wind and the waves to be still. And then, still, calm. And then all the more, the disciples were afraid. What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. That's scary. And then he turns to them and says, You little faith. You see, it's going to be by his might. These verses not only demonstrate God's power in creation, but also his sovereignty, his authority over creation. You see, everything we experience, we live in the natural and our circumstances are natural. But he is above the natural. That's why he is supernatural. And sometimes our circumstances are brought about by spiritual forces. But in the spirit realm, God is the big kahuna. He's a big shot. No one can thwart him. Third way he demonstrated his generosity is through his providence. Verses 9 through 13. God protects and provides for all creation. The whole earth was given to man. To Man was given dominion over the earth. But when man sinned, he abdicated that responsibility. But still, God provides and cares for the earth. And I want us to look at the generosity of God. His care, His love, His providence, His provision for all of creation in the following verses. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You see there, blessing and growth. Let's continue. You crown the year with your bounty, with your abundance. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. That's just a figurative way of saying, basically, when you come, your abundance overflows. It's interesting. Overflow and then abundance. And then the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. What do you notice there? There's no lack in God. But there's always abundance. There's always superabundance. He never runs out. He is the source of all things. He has blessed us with everything that we need. If He can do that for the earth, how much more? We, human beings, were made in His image. But the question is, do we turn to Him? All those blessings are readily available. The question is, do we turn to Him? Do we acknowledge Him? Do we take what has already been provided for us? That's the question. You see, it is understood that when a believer is flourishing and he's, he is blessed, the blessing of God is there and he is blessed in his life. But when he is in misery or where he's devastated, it's probably his choice. Not all the time, but probably most of the time. But let me tell you this, God has given us everything that we need. 
and in Christ we have all those. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We already are blessed. That's why Paul in Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 9, he says, I pray the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better, so that you may know the hope to your calling, your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurably great power that is at work in those who believe. In other words, all those things are available for you. We just need to have a revelation. That's why Paul prayed for the Spirit of God to open our eyes, that we would have revelation and wisdom from the Spirit to see what's already been provided for us. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are blessed in Christ. Well, it doesn't look like it. Well, that's why you need to pray that God would open your eyes because it's right in front of you and you don't see it. As we bring this so close, no one who knows and grows in God remains the same. No one who knows and grows in God remains the same. And let me bring some application here. Because God demonstrated His generous grace to us, we are therefore to be gracious to others and to be forgiving of others. Just as God has been gracious to us and just as God forgave us. Are there people that you can't forgive right now? Look back at how God forgave you. You tell yourself, how dare you not forgive when you have received forgiveness and you don't even deserve that forgiveness, but it is given to you anyway. How dare you do not, how dare you not forgive? But tell yourselves that. We have to be gracious to and forgiving of others. Secondly, because God demonstrated His generous power and might in, through, and for us, we are to be more compassionate with others. Just as God had shown us compassion, and because of our fallen state, He loved us and He took pity on us, and He demonstrated His love for us by using His power. We are here to use whatever influence and whatever privilege we have been given by God not to dominate and to exclude. We are here to use our influence and our privileges to serve and include, to serve others. We are not to use our privileges for ourselves. We are to use it to serve others. We are to be compassionate with those who are in need. And lastly, because God demonstrated His generous providence to us, we are therefore to be generous to others. He is a generous God. Remember I told you about my dad? It's not an issue for me to be generous because I saw my dad's example. You know, when I became a believer, when I became a Christian, a follower of Christ, when I became a child of God, and then I began to refer to God as my father, then I saw His generosity. Generosity begets generosity. And the people of God, the children of God, reflect Him. And if He is generous, we are to be generous as well. Not to ourselves, but to others. We are to be generous with others. I began this sermon by saying the generosity of God is a manifestation of God's love for all creation, including undeserving sinners 
Do you know that God's ultimate manifestation of His generosity was when He sent His one and only Son to become man. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but will have eternal life. Can we truly walk in generosity before others? F.F. F. Bruce, theologian, said this, God bestows His blessings without discrimination. The followers of Jesus are children of God and they should manifest the family likeness by doing good to all, even to those who deserve the opposite. And I'd like to end with this thought. We show our appreciation for God's generosity to us with thanksgiving, worship, faith, and by showing generosity to others. And it's all by the grace of God that we are able to do these things. David said, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. God wants us to be with him. To hang out with him in his house, in his court. Do we have that experience? Or are we too busy with our life, with our schedule, with our dreams, with our ambitions, with all other things in our lives that we don't make time to be in the court of God? So bow our heads right now. Father, I pray that you would help us to meditate on that verse, that statement by David. And Lord, I pray that you would stir up our hearts that we would desire to be in your courts. Lord, let us be like the psalmist who said, better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than be anywhere else. Lord, let us have that desire. King David, he was the king. He had all the privileges. I mean, none of us would even come close to everything that he had. And yet, For him, he would rather be in the house of his God. Father, help us to see what David saw. And help us, Lord, yearn for you, long for you. Lord, help us to meditate on this passage. Blessed are those you choose and you draw near to dwell in your courts. They will be satisfied. Father, I'd like to leave your people with that thought. And as they meditate on that, draw them near. Let them know. Let them hear that you're calling them and you're choosing them and you're inviting them into your courts. And for those of us, Lord, who are already there, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes that we may know you more. 